Bob and Jeremy's Conflab. The Reality Podcast. It's time for another episode. Thank you for clicking play. And you ready for a bit of play, Bobby? I'm always ready for some play, Jeremy. You know me. Soft play. Um, yes, when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to Bob and Jeremy's Conflab. Um, there is there is no limits to which I wouldn't go to to uh, in, make our listeners enjoy our banter. So that's my uh, that's my plan uh, for today. When when Bob's boys were younger, he loved a bit of soft play action, didn't you, Bob? As well, <laughs> going into those those funny centres. What was the one? Wear them out. Oh. I love that. Bob used to go to one called Wear them out. Of course, there was a grammar problem with that, but. Uh... <laughs> So we're going to play of a different nature, aren't we now, Bob? We're going to play a word, bit of word play. Yes. Bit of, bit of business play. Yes. So we are going to do a podcast about two things. Firstly, short-termism. And secondly, lifetime value. And how those two things do or don't work in tandem. To summarise, it's short-termism and lifetime value. So, Jeremy, what's the general reason for this podcast? Well, lots of people say they want customers for life. They're very interested in the lifetime value of customers. But just as you've said in the very naming of this episode, there are things against you to make that become a a reality. And at the weekend, something happened to me. I, I went to look at cars as my three teens aren't getting any smaller and I have a Mini which cannot fit all of us in. And then I have another car that still can't really fit all of us in very comfortably. Flo in the middle has complained for the last sort of three years. So we're at a crossroads. Now this chap was a mature salesperson by age. And when he went through the prices, I found myself saying, well, how are you ever going to get your money back? He said, well, it's so much more about the after sales now, you see. And I thought, "Mm, I, I wish it were so. And he went on about the fact that we hope to look after you and you'll come back and you'll take on another car with a PCP, the kind of put it down type payment. Um, I think we need to give listeners the context here. The proper context is that he was making it clear why most people would do leasing or uh, personal contracts rather than actually try and buy a car Mm. outright these days. Yeah. And so that's the reason why you're having this discussion. Because I've only ever bought cars outright. And he went, well, no one does that anymore and you shouldn't do it either. And I was going, oh, really? Now, when you and I were talking about the episode that would come up, we made some notes when you get into this. We were thinking, interesting that people really want you to go back and back. And we've always used the car analogy that you don't sell a person a car once you sell them a car for life. And they keep buying more and more brands. But I think this is harder. And I also have a contention to put to you that I don't think these businesses really, really mind if they don't have you for life because I think there's a lot of short-termism at bay. But let's just deal with a concept, if people don't know about it, of what customer lifetime value is. So various companies like to put together a calculation where they say, we typically keep our customers for this period of time. They transact with us this many times a year. And our sweet spot is women between the ages of 45 and 55. They tend to spend quite a bit of money with us. And then Some of them carry on, but we mostly have our sweet spot that decade of their life when they're buying X for their homes or whatever it might be. So they then say, if you one of these walks in, they've got 
five grands hovering above their head like an imaginary halo. And of course, Bob and I in our work, we go and we question this, we challenge this, we try to work out how they get these figures and so on. So customer lifetime value is a calculation that people get quite excited about. They then look at the amount of customers they have. They then can project back to investors and everyone else, look, we've got these customers, they're going to be worth this. If you give us some money, you're going to get it back in spades because look at our customer lifetime value. Anything else to add just to get that concept clear, Bob? The concept of a lifetime value is also made from the assumption mm. that once that customer buys from you and is happy, they will continue to do so. So a great example would be insurance, where you get a good insurance product, you like the policy that you have, it protects you well, it's a reasonable cost. And they think, well, okay, if you're going to pay £500 a year for that policy, if you're with us for 10 years, then that's a £5,000 lifetime value. However, they also hope you're going to recommend this mm. company to friends and family. So the lifetime value could be seven, eight, nine thousand per person if they think about those elements too. Now, what this does, and it is an assumption, is that you think that the person has bought, that's it. Mm. They found us. They don't mm. need to do any more comparison. They don't need to go anywhere else. They're going to love this so much. They're going to come back to us year on year on year, or in a car's case, every two or three years, or with uh, PCs and IT every couple of years, we want to upgrade. You know, that's what a retailer or an online retailer would expect that they would get from that purchaser in the first instance. The experience is going to be so good, they're going to come back again and again. Let's just come in on something you've said there. This is what they believe will happen. But the interventions that those brands put in place to ensure this lifetime value happens are minimal. I mm. mean, we are one of these things. Sometimes we work with brands brilliantly and they absolutely engage us and partner with us. Other times we might be a bit of a, a sheep dip exercise. And uh, they think that by putting people through a bit of training, they'll be amazing in their customer interaction. Of course, some brands are brilliant at it and serious at it and allow us to do serious work. However, if we go back to what Alan said to me, who was showing me these cars, and he talked about after sales being essential. He wasn't in after sales, he's in the fronting part of it. I don't know, and I'll ask you, Bob, have you had any extraordinary nudges and extraordinary outbound calls? Amazing if what we could collectively call account management done on you as a consumer. I'm not talking about B2B, I'm talking about consumer account management, because if these brands want to keep us for life, what are they doing that is technically a form of account management? The only brand which consistently does this to me as a consumer is Amazon. Yep. So yep. Amazon sends yep. out emails. Mm -hmm. It occasionally sends out promotional emails. And also, to be fair, Netflix. Netflix monitors the sort yep. of dark, sordid things that I watch. And, and offers more. Mm. Offers more. So, you know, but that's them understanding my preferences. I think it's very different to expect the account manager, and I think it's a very well chosen term, to give you an annual contact. And I think in a way that's a shame. I remember a few years ago, I used to be with an insurance company who were down on the coast, I won't name them, and they were pretty good. And one year I spoke to a young lady who was excellent, really, really excellent. I think her name was Sophie, but I can't be sure. Imagine the power of the following year if I'd phoned up 
and said, can I speak to Sophie? And she looked, yes, I'm Sophie. Oh, hi, Sophie. You won't remember, but you did my car insurance last year. And she went, oh, right. And she gets the system up and we have a kind of a conversation. Or even better, she rings me and says, oh, hi, Bob. And this is Sophie. About a year ago, we sorted out your car insurance. And, you know, I would love that kind of close relationship with someone who, at the very least, I've had a conversation with before. It's all doable. It's just it's just not it done. It is doable. And I work for an employer that did that. We had our set of accounts in a contact center. We had our set of accounts outside of the contact center. However, when short-termism reared its ugly head and there was an opportunity for more money, that particular brand dispensed with these rather more personalized account management strategies. So let's think about why that might be. So let's take a, a large organization that turns over hundreds of millions of pounds a year. So in a good year, it will turn over, in a bad year, it will turn over a few hundred million less. And in a good year, it will turn over a few hundred million more. Its revenues will fluctuate and it will always be a fairly large generator. So I'm going to talk about um, what happens when a new CEO joins a large organization that turns over hundreds of millions. What is that CEO there to do? He or she is there to help that organization acquire more customers, increase the value of that organization for shareholders, to increase profitability, and to also do something to indicate that the future long-term prospects of this brand are high. That's what they're there to do. Now, very rarely do you get a CEO who joins an organization and says, right, I've got a 10-year plan to take us from number three in the market to number one. These are the milestones we're going to have, and it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster, but it's going to be amazing when we get there. That's almost a unicorn. It just doesn't exist. More often than not, you'll have a CEO who comes in who says, right, in the next two years, I'm going to increase the market capitalization of this organization, the market value of this organization, through acquiring as many new customers as I can, through any and all means that I can find to help us do that, that means that on paper, our value to the city will be extremely high, which means our share price will rocket, which means our shareholders will get a dividend, and I will receive a life-changing bonus. And then I might want to do it somewhere else. <laughs> yes, for a couple of years. And, and let's talk about this concept we want to put forward here called cheap customers. So what a lot of firms do is they acquire customers that are not spending a terrific amount, but they've added to the balance sheet and they're at least buying something. They've got new data on them. They can market to them. They've gathered their email address. They've got a postal address. Their customer numbers have gone up, especially for the city because the city likes that. And arguably their market share has gone up. And then there's all sorts of wonderful projections back to our friend customer lifetime value. We might project upon this data. Now, very rarely will we see plans for more than two or three years, because also a lot of these people are going to go and do it at another organization and move on, which also comes back to our original question. Do you really want customers for life or do you want customers for your three year tenure? Because and the rest of your board who also might move on and your non-exec directors and so on and so on. And non-exec directors then jump around and have other places that they help and so on. So the concept is getting much, much harder for particularly large businesses. And if we come to medium-sized businesses, perhaps it's easier, perhaps it's even easier with smaller ones, but I still think they're having the same problems because the quality of products is rising. Therefore, more and more things are bought in a box in a finished state, 
And so if you really want customers and to stop them shopping around, you've got to do some kind of after sales and service care that stands out from the rest so they come back to you. And where are you actually making your profitability? Where are you making your margins? Are you a volume business? Or are you a business that can make bespoke money on very niche aspects of personalization? And so it's a very, very tricky thing. And I think short-termism is not your friend in trying to achieve lifetime value. Let's talk about departments for a minute. Still, I would say that over 80% of the companies we work with, sales and marketing are divided. So you have a marketing department that produces branding, advertising, direct response advertising, emailing people, and then sales teams, and they don't really know what each other is doing. So that, again, is hindering this idea of lifetime value. I don't think I've been put through to an after... Have you been put through to an after-sales department? I've been put through to departments to stop me leaving, but that's not really after-sales. That's like, let's chuck money at that customer to keep them now. But are are there any brilliant after-sales departments? I remember years ago, we worked with a leading travel brand and they, at that point, I think I'm right in saying, were perfectly happy to sell their holidays at a loss, mm, mm. i.e. they weren't making any profit on the actual package holidays they were selling. And then they would pass on the bookings to the after-sales department who would ring up and yes. things like, uh, you know, air in-flight meals, and, um, upgrade, excursions, mm. car hire, that kind of thing. That's where they make their money. But I do remember that listening to some of those calls, those after-sales people were appalling. I mean, they had no real skill in terms of getting into that you know, conversation and talking about the holiday. They were just there to blag a couple of sales. And I think that's the other point that you know, if you're not sure about the relationship or the type of relationship you want with your clients, then why would you give a half-masted team the opportunity to try and upsell them? Because A, that's not going to contribute to your lifetime value. And B, it's actually going to affect or negatively affect your short-term plans Mm. as well. Because they might be thinking, well, actually, if I go to another company or go direct, it's going to cost me less. And so you're you're forcing them to make other different types of buying decisions. Yeah, so vast outbound inventory selling. We've got this, we haven't sold. Can you sell it, Mm. please? And putting a load of people on the phone, that's dying out because customers see straight through it. So if you really want lifetime value, you've got to ask your customers more questions. You've got to be proactive into why you haven't heard from them. Now, I'm not suggesting you do this all personally face-to-face or over a phone, but there must be ways of breaking them down into a number of groups and saying who are low touch that are quite happy and we could deal with them in this channel. I mean, even a decent WhatsApp, you know, the NHS can make contact with me in quite an efficient way after an appointment or before an appointment. Surely this could be adopted by many more brands. And then who deserves a visit? Who deserves a phone call? Who deserves that? Whereas I think it still gets put into the same pot for what's the lowest cost form of means of communication we can afford. And again, let's apply some algorithms to this bunch of customers and say, if we keep this percentage of this much, and this it's that kind of stuff going on. So do you really want these customers for life? No, you want them for as long as you can before you do something else with your life, it seems to be. I was thinking about our business. And if we go back over the last 15 years in particular, as a training business, we have a number of clients and ex-clients who we have long-term relationships with. Mm. So actually, if we were to sit down and bother to calculate the lifetime value of some of those clients, it would be significant. Some Mm. of them would be very, very high indeed. And of course, we're very grateful. At the same time, what that also means is that we've somehow 
managed to maintain a good relationship with those people over that period, which is a, a level of account management or social media and direct marketing and things like that, which, which helps that to tick over. But we're a personal business. You know, we are a, a business that is a few people. And so we don't have much choice when it comes to that. There are other products which are sold both to consumers and businesses, which could have a better and more tangible lifetime value. So, of course, the first of those we've already mentioned is cars. I'm not sure that car dealerships have the tenure of staff Mm. to allow for this these days. I think if you work for BMW, you've probably worked for Mercedes and Audi and several other brands as well over the years. So I, I don't know that there's still the same longevity. But if you have got somebody who's been working for the same company for years, they probably have a small bank of regular customers. I think we should just say at this point, of course, the disruptors in the car market, because one thing that Tash said to me as we were standing there yesterday in this big dealership, she said, God, it's so sparkly and shiny and it's so sort of formal. It was a bit like being in a hotel lobby as we stood there and you sort of waited to be seen. And this smart young man said, have you got an appointment? Which was the awful close question. No. OK, no worries. We get your name and I'll get someone to come and see you. And then it was all sort of everyone was being a bit reserved. And you know, there are these online car companies now where you just yeah. know haggling, you buy the thing and it arrives at your house. And Absolutely. I thought that's quite interesting that you that again, you're admitting that the sales skills are so less impactful than they might have been 15, 20 mm, years ago. Definitely. You know, you want the X1000 or whatever, just buy it online and we'll deliver it. So I think it's going to be hard for dealerships to maintain these large buildings. We know they've always pleaded poverty on their profit margins as well. So how long is that actually going to go for? So let's talk about other brands that perhaps should push for lifetime value and which brands, you know, really could do an exercise. The other one is travel, because if travel's coming back and people realize that an agent, and I would extend this to all agents, any agent who goes off to find you the best provider and earns a commission because of that, whether that's a house sale, an insurance sale, a travel experience whatever it might be, a theatrical agent and so on and so on. They earn a percentage by doing a very good job that makes you inspired to use them again and they do all the searching for you. So I would like to suggest that agents are in a great position for personalization and lifetime value, or at least the lifetime before you stop being an agent, um, you know, before you choose to sue something else. Um, the other one I put down here is it's much harder to do, but there are, there are certain brands that are very good at this and they're, they're often very big brands, but small ones can do this is food. So the certain food habits that we have, those companies recognize that certain foods fit into our lifestyle. There's a huge growth in companies providing you with ingredients that you cook at home and so on and so on. Some of those people, the more they learn about you, the more they're able to suggest what other products you might like within their stable. So I see some quite slick customer communication on those sides of things. And I think small providers and makers could also do this, whether it's online or retail or whatever else. But apart from that, I don't have a massive list of things, I don't know if you do, of brands that should be easily achieving customer lifetime value. Well, I think the one brand that has done that as far as you and I are concerned is Apple. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I'm going to take you back many years now. Before you and I got our first iPhones, you and I were missold a contract with another provider with the worst pair of handsets you'd ever seen. And when we complained, they wouldn't let us come out of that contract. Mm. So we just bought cheap phones to get through to the end of that contract. And then if you remember, we cancelled and then they tried everything 
yeah. everything to keep us. Mm. But we said, no, no, you should have done this two years ago. You lost us two years ago and now we're gone and we never look back. And we've been, we've been with Apple ever since. Okay. Mm. Now, not mm. just that. We then swapped our PCs to Macs. We're both sitting here on Macs now. Anne doggedly keeps to her PC, which is good for her. But there's no way we'd go back to PCs now, I don't think, from that choice. No, because I um, guess they, maybe what we're coming to here is they achieve it in how they sell. The communication mm. you have when you do have an interaction in a store over the phone is yeah. very high quality. Yeah. yeah, And then there's a check afterwards that, is it working? Has that still worked? Is that right for you? So they are. I think they're working hard in those three departments. We always yeah. meet people as we do when we work who don't like them, of course. We sure, do. sure. But our experiences have been been good. It would be great if there was a third mm. option that was as strong in the market. That would really shake things up. That, there needs to be a disruptor who can do that. But for now, if you think about the tens of thousands that we've spent over the last 10, 12 years with Apple, that's a high lifetime value. And we're a small company. On mm. a larger company making that choice, it's hundreds, thousands, millions of dollars that are being spent every year with that brand. And I think they've definitely, that's why their market value is so massive because people understand that once you've made that switch, you're probably going to stick with them. I look at this now and I think, is it that there's only a very few brands who believe in the true lifetime value of customers? And is it also the case that the majority of others are happy to exist in a short-term world mm. which inflates the value to pay bonuses and shareholders rather than settling a brand in for a long-term growth? Well, uh, I was just thinking absolutely to that. And I think if we look at the classic five stages of marketing, awareness, interest, trial, repurchase, loyalty, brands determine that we that someone's nudged to loyalty post-trial. I think what you should do is camp out in the repurchase space longer. What do we do to get you to repurchasing this? We don't consider you're loyal yet. And the other thing that, that my cousin Nick wrote about for his degree, a really interesting thesis, is just on the disloyalty of human beings. We are programmed mm. to look at shiny new things. We're mostly magpies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, look at this. Oh, what's that? It's very hard to be completely loyal to something unless there's been a very deep connection, personal experience, humor, something, some vulnerability shared. And lots of brands won't, won't be good about complaint handling and their mistakes. But perhaps it's as simple as that, is that a lot of brands assume loyalty and that by just doing a mass email marketing campaign, that'll be enough. But it is coming back to cars, and I think it's quite a good one to close on. Mm. I remember, you know, 20 years ago, I was given a car allowance to buy a car, a company car, as it were. And I went to three of the major brands that we all know and love. And the service was so universally mm. shocking at those brands that I didn't buy from any of them. And I bought another car instead of a completely separate brand, which I would never normally have gone for. And I remember that experience distinctly thinking, a man walks in with a car allowance on mm. his hip mm. You can sell me any car in the lot, okay? The man doesn't walk on the car lot unless he wants to buy, okay? That's a great quote from Glengarry Glen Ross. I walked onto that car lot with literally money on my hip, yeah. and none of them could make me feel good enough to sell me a car. And I think that many car brands, any car brands listening to this, I think you need to go back to the drawing board a bit 
because the car market is changing. Of course, it's all going electric. Of course, that means that all I'm literally buying is a shell of a car with a battery in, in, you know, in essence, that's all I'm actually buying. So therefore, how are you going to prove to me that the value of that car is the same as the one that had a V8 engine in? Well, I won't mention the company, but let me talk about what's happened to me. So I'm no longer going to be loyal to the single car brand yes. that I've bought cars from for, I think, 27 years. Well, because I'm not surprised. Well, their battery went wrong. I, I called them up and they said, well, no, we only underwrite the batteries. We only guarantee the batteries, not the software. We need another two grand out of you to fix the software. And they ran a point system on me to see if I could have any contribution from the head office brand. Sorry, you've scored zero. I've scored zero. Why? Because you don't take it to a main dealer. No, I take it to my friend who actually I've been loyal to for 27 years to have all my X's, blanks, Y's, brands serviced. And then he told me a really interesting number the other day, Bob. He said, isn't that interesting they did that to you? Do you know I spend 1.4 million a year with that brand? Wow. Because he's buying parts. He's also buying their used vehicles. He makes the world go round. But someone, and Mm. he said, I'm sorry, Jez, it's not just this brand, Mm. but it's all brands. Even though I make the world turn and buy their parts and put in a bill last year for 1.4 to get the genuine parts from them. I think we're making our point here that... The world is changing. The lifetime value of a customer does need to be considered. And I also think that the short-termism is something that employees need to understand because Mm. that short-termism will come from the top. It won't be necessarily explained to those people in the front line. They'll just be beaten to hit numbers, okay? And actually, if somebody explained to you, we're doing this for these reasons, and actually there's something in it for you, then maybe you'd, you'd feel differently about it. But I think the truth is that in a capitalist society where the speculative market valuization of a brand suddenly becomes more important than than actually what you're doing. Mm. So food for thought there, folks. Um, Look at your own business and consider what is our customer lifetime value approach and are we being too short termist? I mean, I remember Simon Sinek saying, would it be great if businesses rewarded people in 15 years time for something they did 15 years ago? So you're working there and someone taps you, hey, Rog, something you did 15 years ago, that's just really innovated and come around. We just want to give you another 50 grand for that. Imagine if you rewarded that kind of act. Yeah. Well, I remember when I was selling advertising, imagine if they'd said to me, um, Bob, when you sell Mm. this campaign, you'll get a small amount of commission. And then because it's generated some revenue, we'll give you a tiny percentage of this brand sales over the next 10 years. What an incentive then to sell more, you know, just just be a bit creative. And to do it properly. Yes, you wouldn't, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't hesitate for a second. Yeah, when you win one of the absolute clients we want to get, your mm-hmm. account management will just pay you for life. Brilliant, brilliant. God, brilliant. There's, maybe we should restart the ad game. Um, maybe. <laughs> All right, Bobby, lovely seeing you. Yes, uh, thank you, listeners. Cheers for now. See you on the next one. Bye. Bob and Jeremy's Conflab. Reality Podcast.